Hello and welcome to episode 30 of Cycles in Philosophy of Software, Common Principles with Different Names and Reference. I'm, I'm one of your hosts, Sam Livingston Gray, and I am here to welcome to the show my co-host Janelle Klein. Welcome, Janelle. Hi. Yes, that's me. And I'd also like to introduce Rain Henricks. Uh, thank you so much. I am excited. This is my birthday, and so this is like a special birthday podcast for me because I get to introduce Tom Stewart. Tom gave us what he calls a standard boring conference bio, which I will nevertheless read, which is that Tom is a computer scientist and programmer. He has lectured on optimizing compilers at the University of Cambridge and written about technology for The Guardian. He co-organizes the Ruby Manor Conference and is a member of the London Ruby User Group and London Computation Club. Tom is currently writing an ebook called How to Write a Web Application in Ruby. His previous book, Understanding Computation, was published by O'Reilly in 2013. Now, he did tell us uh, that he is, in fact, not actively writing that book at the moment because, quote, it turned into a slog, which, to be fair, as someone who has developed web applications in Ruby for the better part of a decade, it is sort of a slog to do so. So I can understand that. So, Tom, thank you so much for being here. I guess I like what you also included after the standard boring conference bio, which is that you get a lot of enjoyment out of programming and that you want to share that with people and better communicate some of the mathematical or computer scientific aspects of it to help people get more enjoyment out of those. So I'm a big fan of that. Great. Well, thanks very much for the intro and happy birthday. I'm very, I feel very honored to be here on this special day. So uh, we sometimes like to start the show with a sort of superhero origin story where our guest talks about what got them into this whole technology thing. Uh, you are welcome to either do that or skip it as you see fit. What do you think, Tom? Uh, I'm happy to give a superhero origin story. I guess what got me into technology in the first place was when I was a kid, my dad was a teacher and he taught computers among other things and so from an extremely young age there was always a computer around the house and so it's like always been a a normal part of my life it's not something that i chose to get into it's something that i was just exposed to from a really young age and it was always very normal for me to have a computer to play with and i was incredibly privileged this was in the 80s um home computers were a thing but they were expensive but because my dad was a teacher we could borrow computers from school and stuff like that so i was very very lucky to have access access to um, the BBC Micro that was one of the kind of early home computers in the 1980s in the UK. And I learned to program on that. So all through school, I was while the other kids were outside playing sports and stuff. I was indoors writing little programs in BBC Basic and figuring out how things worked and typing in computer programs from magazines and taking them to pieces and trying to figure out how they worked. And then that's just naturally continued into my adult life. I still basically do that. I still spend a lot of my leisure time and evenings kind of doing stuff relating to writing computer programs. My job has become increasingly less and less oriented around actually writing code and more around kind of people-y stuff. But I still have this real urge to tinker with computer programs and figure out how things work. So, yeah, I get involved in a bunch of meetups and go to events and just spend some of my time in the evenings kind of hacking on stuff and building little things at the weekends for my own enjoyment. And uh, sometimes for some of the meetups that I go to or organize, I'll kind of build fun little tools and visualizations and things like that. So there's the through line from my origin story to right now is I suppose that I just I'm really fascinated by computer programs and by computation and by the sort of mathematical underpinnings of that stuff. And I just get a lot of joy out of fiddling around with them and figuring out interesting new things to do with programs. So it's not much of a superhero, but that's me. I'd say that being able to uh, persist and, and focus on difficult technical topics is most definitely a superpower. Cool. As a 
short aside, was BBC Basic the one that didn't require parentheses around a function arguments? Oh, I can't remember. Possibly. That, would that entirely explain your later interest in Ruby? <laughs> <laughs> Are you saying that Ruby is like the, the BBC Basic of the Smallpox. 90s? I think those were your words, sir. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Fine. All right. Well, um, birthday prerogative. <laughs> so with that wonderful base, shall we talk about people? Let's. Well, so one of the things Tom threw out as a topic when we were uh, setting up this episode was this idea of the differences between, quote, junior and, quote, senior people and uh, what differentiates the two. Uh, but before we get into that, I would re- like to uh, talk about nomenclature a little bit. I hesitate to label people as junior and senior because I feel that it implies that this assessment we're making of their technical skills applies to them as, a, as an entire human being. Um, and it reminds me a bit of when I was working in a law firm earlier on in my career. And uh, one of the things that I learned about legal culture is that it doesn't matter what you've done before you came to law school. You could be a doctor. You could have been a bike messenger. The only thing that matters, at least in theory, is how long you've been in law and uh, how long you've been practicing and whether you've worked your way up through the ranks. At the time, that struck me as a certain level of hubris that the profession is saying that ours is the only thing that matters in the world. And I feel like uh, labeling people as junior and senior developers sort of recapitulates that hubris. So I like to borrow what Coraline has been saying about people who are early career or people who are more experienced in software development. But uh, I've been talking for way too long. So, Tom, tell us about uh, early career versus experienced folks. Well, I completely agree with you on that. I also find that kind of junior and senior uh, naming to be probably at best a little bit patronizing and at worst potentially kind of alienating to people. It is really interesting the extent to which experience in itself like is or isn't a useful proxy for determining skills. I think increasingly as I've spent more time working with developers, both extremes of that spectrum. So both with as I get more experienced and the people around me, the people that I know are becoming more experienced, but also because there's now a much healthier supply of new developers into the industry. You know, things like boot camps are producing a much healthier supply of lots of different kinds of people who are maybe uh, some of those will be young people who are looking to do development as a first career. But there are also a lot of people who are changing from, you know, they may be in their 30s or 40s or 50s and they want to switch away from whatever they were doing before. So I'm getting exposed to a lot of different kinds of people who you might notionally want to put in that bucket labeled junior, but it doesn't really make sense for that to be the label. And also, you know, people will come to the role of software development with a bunch of pre-existing skills, regardless of how many weeks or months or years they've been working as a software developer. They may well have, and in many cases, you know, a lot of the people who I've met who are doing their very first software development job, they already have a very impressive array of skills that I see as being absolutely essential to being a developer. So it may be that they have not spent very much time actually writing computer programs, but especially if they've had a previous career, they might have spent the last decade dealing with other people and learning how to communicate and learning how to negotiate difficult conversations or learning how to empathize with other people's perspectives and things like that. And obviously, that's just as important an aspect of being a developer as kind of memorizing the whole active record API or whatever. So there's sort of an interesting thing there where it's firstly difficult to know how much experience in each of those areas a person has because it's not necessarily the case that 
someone who has only just become a developer has also only just begun dealing with other humans or learning how to organize their time or learning how to solve problems in an abstract way. You know, they might already have those skills. So that's that's one thing that's problematic about judging people on this kind of one dimensional scale of experience. And I suppose the other one is ultimately what I've come to realize is that I'm actually not really interested in experience in and of itself. Like experience can be helpful because it's a simple proxy for other things that I care about. So for example, one of the main things that I see more experienced developers doing is just having a slightly more bloody minded approach to problem solving, by which I mean, <laughs> and, and it's, it's interesting because I have seen it several times where a new developer has sat down and paired with a more experienced developer and the less experienced of the two quite often brings some expectations along with them. They, I think it's easy for them to assume that the more experienced developer is some kind of wizard and that they are going to know all the magic spells and all the keyboard shortcuts and they'll already have all of the answers to every possible question in their head. And so the less experienced person sits down and says, well, you know, I want to try and solve this problem. I maybe tried it for five minutes and I hit a brick wall and I couldn't figure it out. And so I guess I'm just not smart enough to solve this problem and they'll turn to the more experienced developer and say you know please oh wizard can you tell me you know how to solve this problem and the more experienced developer will just say well i also do not know how to solve this like i don't have the answer to this in my head but what i am going to do is show you that it's normal and fine for us to spend a couple hours like banging our head against this problem and it may be that we need to go search stack overflow or we need to go and look on google or we need to go and read the rails source code to figure out how the heck this thing works and like we'll try writing you know the test we were trying to write is not even correct so we're going to try and write a smaller test and then when that doesn't work we can go figure out that we need to upgrade this dependency and like the fact that software development in large part is just this kind of joyless slog through one problem after another is a thing that it's very very difficult to internalize when you haven't done it for a long time and it's very difficult to teach to someone it's very hard to take someone who's fresh out of a boot camp and say look it's fine for you to just spend a lot of time bashing your head against things and struggling and feeling inadequate because even someone who's been doing software development for 10 20 30 years feels like that every single day like i feel like that every single time i sit down and try to do something i feel frustrated and inadequate and feel like i should know the answer but i don't but the only difference is i know that that's normal and the, the number of years that i have been you know exposing myself to that experience has gradually built up a sort of resistance to that sensation and so now i don't mind sitting down and struggling with something and actually i have and i think most more experienced people have done this you you gradually develop a kind of arsenal of weapons against that feeling so it might be, you know, for example, that you always try to make the problem smaller. If you're bashing your head against something and you've spent an hour or two trying to figure it out and you can't, then rather than continuing to bash your head against the same problem, you take a step back and you try and look at it from a different angle and you say, is there a sub-problem that I can attack? Or is there actually this test that I've been trying to make pass is actually testing three different things at the same time. So can I make a more focused test? Or this thing that's currently a private method, could I expose that as a public method and try and write a unit test 
of that rather than trying to test this sort of public method that actually calls into a bunch of private ones or whatever. So those are the things that I think are really important. Those are the skills that really matter in terms of how productive you can be and how much you're able to multiply the productivity, um, you know, the sort of generativity thing that, that you've discussed on this show before of like, how are you able to better support other developers in being able to be productive and feel smart and feel able to attack problems? Like all of the skills that actually matter there none of them is the skill of having sat in a room for 10 years writing code that doesn't matter at all but i also don't know a good way to teach people that kind of resistance to the day-to-day experience of problem solving with computers faster than sitting there and doing the job for a decade you know so there's there's an interesting like interplay there between i don't want to care about the number of it's not about how many years has your butt been in that chair trying to do this job like that's not interesting but i also am not sure how we can and i would like to get better at figuring out how do we teach those kind of what I'm characterizing as the really important skills of being able to be bloody minded and be persistent and have confidence in yourself and not constantly worry that because you haven't immediately solved a problem because you've failed and failed and failed. Like, how do we get better at teaching people that that is normal and fine? And then maybe we don't need to worry so much about how many years someone has done in the industry, because if we can teach those skills in addition to the skill of knowing how to write individual lines of JavaScript code or knowing how to write tests or knowing how to deploy an application or whatever, then you have the same inherent value as a senior or more experienced person um, after fewer years on the job, just because we found a more effective way to teach them those skills directly rather than hoping that they'll develop them independently by osmosis just by being in a kind of painful situation year on year. So we've got a few different problems here. So one is with respect to just defining things across this, you know, one dimensional spectrum and there being lots of other dimensions to what is experience. But we've also got this problem where a handful of years of experience don't necessarily, I mean, you can have one person with two years experience that is capable in a way of from a problem solving perspective as somebody with 20 years experience and sometimes significantly better, where you've got a huge lack of correlation because those things that you're describing, these problem breakdown skills and things are largely tacit knowledge and things that we're not directly teaching at all. And I mean, I think that ultimately we've got from a hiring standpoint and from um, you know how much do I pay somebody standpoint, companies are trying to figure out a way to solve these problems. And so at the end of the day, we've we've never had any kind of way to assess these skills that other than, you know, having a bunch of experienced people go and drill in and, and try and get a better feel for a person's kind of problem solving capabilities. But at the end of the day, we have these market problems that we need to figure out a way to solve somehow. Otherwise, this whole kind of arbitrary ranking thing, you know, isn't going to fundamentally go away unless we can solve the assessment problem as well as the how do I transfer tacit knowledge into somebody else's brain? You know, like these things that you're talking about are huge gaps in knowledge. And and we teach things in terms of follow the rules and follow best practices. And a lot of that core knowledge that, you know, we're just expecting people to come up with these new things through osmosis. But what you generally see is people pick up the habits from, you know, the folks that they end up working around. And if they're working with somebody who's religious about best practices, but doesn't have a lot of 
context of, you know, making trade-off decisions or breaking down problems and those kind of things, like we're, we're missing a lot of this core ability to just turn our tacit knowledge into explicit knowledge and make it teachable in our field such that, you know, we've got a huge expert beginner problem in our industry. Yeah, definitely. It's interesting how like I have been very pleasantly surprised by the stuff that's happened over the last, I don't know how many years, the last five years, say, with boot camps. I didn't know how to feel about boot camps initially, like when they first started happening and I first started meeting graduates of boot camps, I didn't know what to expect. On the face of it, the idea that you can take someone who has literally never written a line of code before and then in N weeks make them a productive software developer, I wasn't sure whether that was a thing or not. But now having met a bunch of those people, I've actually been incredibly impressed by how well the curricula of these boot camps are preparing people for the realities of software development and particularly sort of drilling into them some of the skills and some of the craft of being a developer. So it's not just about we're just going to relentlessly drill you on APIs and on the syntax of programming. But a lot of it is focused on uh, ways of working. And, you know, and by that, I mean, things like at, at one end of the spectrum, you know, agile, like getting people to have standups and work in sprints and just like get a feel for what it is like to work in a small team of people who are all working on a thing together and at the other end of the spectrum things like teaching people tdd from the beginning and presenting test-driven development as just the way that software is written like that approach to teaching people how to be developers is effectively leapfrogging years and years of struggle and failure until now would sort of be an ordinary part and certainly was part of my you know go, thinking back to the the 90s when i first started doing ruby and i first learned about test-driven development sort of in the early you know going into the sort of the 2000s and figuring out like oh like this is a thing and i need to figure out how to be good at it and it's you know it's taken me like 15 plus years to feel confident with those kind of things whereas i think if i had had the same introduction to the world of writing software as people nowadays are having through boot camps and and the like and not just boot camps but also you know online courses and just all of the ways that you can learn to code now are way better than they used to be and that's partly because of this focus on as you say sort of previously tacit knowledge or sort of hard won knowledge about not just how do computers work how does computer programs work but also how do we work within these systems how do we interact with a computer how do we interact with other people in a team when we're trying to build software and so i have a you know a little bit of hope that that trend can continue and that maybe now it seems like a bunch of people have figured out how to teach that set of tacit knowledge and working practices to people who are new to the industry can we project that line out into the future and say, well, maybe in another five years or 10 years, boot camps or online training courses or however people are professionalizing into the tech industry is also going to teach somehow all of that other tacit knowledge of, yeah, being bloody minded, being persistent. And I didn't mention this, but also I think a very important part is sort of learning to work methodically, you know, the to be able to take the work at a kind of sustainable pace, you know, not thinking that it's normal and expected to be jumping ahead and taking huge leaps. Like that's something that I've had to, and I still learn every day. Every time I try to do something, I am now getting better at quickly realizing that I'm trying to bite off too much and I need to dial it back, take a much larger number of much smaller steps, 
make sure that at every point I'm feeling safe. I've got a commit. My tests are passing. Like I don't ever get into a situation where I type git status and I find that I've got like 30 files that I've changed and I can't remember what I was doing, you know, but all of that stuff is, is very hard to get beginners to do because they are de facto enthusiastic. Like, because they're new and because they haven't been worn down to a sort of featureless, uh, smooth surface of like, oh, I just know what working with a computer is going to be like. That enthusiasm that people bring to the job is incredibly powerful and valuable, but it can also work against them because, again, they don't have this tacit knowledge. They don't have this years of scars of like, oh, every single time I've tried to do a big bang or try and drop a huge commit that changed 5,000 lines or whatever, a bad thing has happened. And so I wonder whether we can keep pushing things in that direction so that gradually the boot camps and the other ways that people are learning stuff get better and better, you know, keep leveling up from that kind of TDD, agile, you know, good software development practices. How do we start turning out people that have all of these like next level tacit skills? Um, I don't know if that's possible, but Maybe it is, and that would be fantastic. So I've got a question for you, because, I mean, you've been developing software for a long time and seen the industry go through a number of different changes. And developing software now looks very different than it did 10 years ago, 20 years ago, you know. And so thinking about how software development itself has changed, how would you characterize kind of your early experiences versus now? And what are some of the major shifts you've seen in the industry in terms of how that's affected development? To be really honest about it, I think the biggest change that I've seen is just how people think about it as a job. And it's a little bit embarrassing to talk about, really. Like when I first started working as a developer, again, in the in the 90s, I've been writing software for fun for a long time before that. But when I got my first job as a developer, I feel like at that time I was very much playing into the kind of the stereotype of a programmer like programmers were the kind of people who just sit in the corner and they're just kind of they've either literally or figuratively they've got their headphones on they've just got like a big black window with like green text on it and it's all like scrolling by like in the matrix and like we don't talk to those people we we know not to disturb them because they'll be cranky if we do you know that whole kind of stereotype of basically what you have to put up with when you hire a developer and i guess the flip side of that is also like what you have to put up with when you're working as a developer you know you're going to be working with a load of people who are not smart enough to understand what it is that you're doing and they'll be constantly distracting you with their inane questions and you'll just have to like sigh and patiently deal with them like i hope that i wasn't like that but it felt like that was the kind of the prevailing industry narrative of what it meant to be a developer Absolutely. Whereas now, I think that we've got tremendously better at that as an industry. I mean, I think we still have a long way to go in a lot of areas, and there are loads of things that could be dramatically better again. But comparing now the expectations of someone who is working as a developer and the expectations of other people who are working with a developer to the expectations that those people had 10 or 15 or 20 years ago is just like a night and day difference in terms of dysfunction, I suppose. Like certainly the places that I have worked, and I've been very fortunate to more or less be able to say yes or no to various uh, jobs. And when I've seen there's an organization that I might not want to work with, I've just not done that. So that's a massively privileged position. But given that kind of selection bias, I've been very lucky to work with lots of people who are very grown up and very just very adult in their approach to doing the job of being a software developer and people who take a much more holistic view of it 
just the very existence of this podcast is evidence of the fact that we now take much more seriously the idea of people being at the center of the work that we do as technologists. And I think that that's been like, I mean, this is not a technological answer to your question, but I think that this is more significant than anything technological. Like we could talk for hours about trends in programming languages and things like that. But like, ultimately, I think the important thing that's changed is the way that we think about our roles as technologists and like what that means, you know, what kind of responsibility do you have? You know, if you're building algorithms that do things to people's lives, then like, how do you do that in a like an ethical and responsible way? Like not everyone has got an answer to that question, but I think several orders of magnitude more people are at least thinking about that question than they used to. And so that's the biggest difference that I have seen is just this kind of for a variety of reasons. And some of them are just like raw economic factors that like it's now not really economically viable to be a fully evil employer or to be a fully evil employee like those things it feels like when you watch films set in the 80s that are about sort of corporate greed and you know money and you know always be closing and stuff like there was a narrative in the 80s of sort of greed is good and like the more unpleasant you can be the faster you're going to be able to climb the corporate ladder and be successful and i know that recent events don't necessarily put a lie to that notion but it, within the tech industry i think we've got a lot better at sort of saying well no as an employer you can't just tell your developers that they have to work late every night and come in at the weekends because that's unreasonable as a developer you can't expect everyone else in the business to automatically understand all of your techno babble and you can't tell them to never interrupt you because like you're working with the pure thought stuff in your head and if anyone comes and pricks that bubble then it's all just going to evaporate like we've got a lot better at that and i think that that is fundamentally like incredibly important in turning software development from a kind of actually quite nascent and poorly defined job like a a sort of a new industry that we didn't really know how to make sustainable and how to make something that we can actually attract people into i think we're getting better at that and that's really important to me and i think it's really significant and i can see the changes happening already in the industry in terms of just you know the basic diversity of people who are interested in it like we're, we are now much better at including a much wider range of people and it's much less likely although still more likely than it should be that people are just going to be turned off immediately from the whole notion of working as a developer because it's so fundamentally unpleasant like i don't think it is as unpleasant as it used to be that being said it could be a lot more pleasant and i'm like super interested in ways that we can make that happen too yeah we do still have a lot a lot of work we could do in that area. But yes, it, the fact that we're talking about it at all is, is I take that as a sign of progress. See, I, I think the industry has changed like so much. And it's not just like looking at unpleasant versus pleasant. It's again, a, another one dimensional spectrum to something that isn't fundamentally one dimensional. And what one of the huge things that's fundamentally changed since the dawn of the internet is we've have this plethora of options and choices for everything. And we've built abstraction and on top of abstraction on top of abstraction that now you know, the software we build as opposed to building something from scratch and us having to, you know, figure out how to debug through our own code that we're developing. Now we're in these days where 90% of our software is off the shelf parts and we get some, you know, funky error message on our screen through some magic code base, 
you know, that we're, we're using. And we spend hours and hours of time debugging and trying to Google our way through stuff and then churn through our libraries and dependency chain stuff. You end up with stuff that breaks from upstream dependencies that causes all these problems downstream with integration. And then suddenly you've got this new family of problems of, oh, now when I Google for something, all the examples and stuff online are all out of date. So nothing actually works. And Google ability basically becomes a big part of usability of, of the software itself. So those dependencies have fundamentally changed and like the skills that we need also change with it and being able to learn things quickly in this rapidly changing world and being able to find what the library that you need or the example that's going to work. And it seems to be more shifting toward ability to identify the information you need quickly and being able to kind of track that down in addition to there's this tacit knowledge side of development. And then there's like this whole new family of learning skills that we need. And I don't even think those things are really being taught in boot camps at all. Well, maybe to some extent they are, but that to me harkens back to yeah. something that Tom was saying about memorizing the entire Active Record API, which, you know, I <laughs> because I have not. I've been working in Rails for 10 years and I still don't know all of the API of Active Record. But, you know, there was a time like I had the GW basic manual uh, with the computer that I had in my house when I was 14 and I could have sat down and memorized it end to end and known everything there was to know about that programming language that is in no way possible for anything that we use now. One thing I was going to mention is that it's a legitimate problem for languages that use a lot of sigils and operators and other symbols that those things yeah. can't be Googled. Yeah, I was thinking about that and about how, you know, there's the Saper-Whorf hypothesis that our language shapes the way that we think. But uh, there's something else about how the tools that we use, like Google and its complete disregard for punctuation, changes the way we interact with our programming languages. I mean, I know that that hypothesis has more or less been discredited, but I, I think it's probably hard to argue that our language shapes the way we communicate with other people, Yeah, which is almost as important because it's not just about having an idea. It's about, you know, sharing ideas. So, Right, which is why you have to type Golang anytime you want to search for anything from <laughs> Google's programming language. I'm wondering if the language itself just, you know, creates bias in this discussion. You all are in Ruby world, right? Mm-hmm. So maybe that's one thing that's <laughs> fundamentally different. Too. I mean, I, my background is Java. And so like the challenge of having this proliferation of options for ways to do everything has its own bag of problems with it. And I'm just wondering if just being in more of a, a bounded box with Ruby on Rails world, you, you have a lot more scope on options. I'm not sure I follow. So with Ruby on Rails, you have a community around Ruby on Rails and sort of a isolated box of places to go to find answers for things with respect to Ruby. Okay. And at least the Ruby world is smaller than the Java ecosystem, I would say. Is that an accurate statement? probably fair, yeah. I mean, it seems big to me, but that's my own myopia probably. (laughs) I think if you went to like the Java One conference or something and it's like, you know, 10,000 people, (laughs) it's kind of scary. I mean, there's just a huge mess of problems related to dependency management in a lot of different spaces. And I mean, just a whole new class of problems that we have to figure out how to solve with respect to collaboration, because all of the complexity these days is following into the wires and the dependencies. And when things mm-hmm. blow up from something, you know, five levels deep abstraction wise, having to figure out how all that stuff works when a lot of the code isn't yours. And I realized to some extent, we all have these same problems. At the same time, there's this effect of that 
you know, the bigger the ecosystem is, the more choices and options there are, the more, the faster the infrastructure itself is, is churning, the more painful all of these dependency management type related issues are of, of trying to figure out, you know, how all this is supposed to work together. Right. And I suppose there's a combinatorial effect of like, I've selected these different packages to do what I want to do and nobody else has chosen that particular thing. So I'm on my own integrating them. Yeah. And it's much easier to get into that position where, especially in JavaScript land, where everything is like churning so insanely fast that it's like, oh, that's so last year, (laughs) you know, and then and then the community just disappears on you. And then what do you do? I think you're right. And it it sort of ties back into a an interesting point that you made earlier about how the actual nature of the work is changing. I think that's that's a really, really good point. And I haven't really thought about it until you said it, but it's a it's a smart way of thinking about like what does the actual day-to-day work of writing software look like and what does it consist of? And I think that that necessarily has changed over the last, you know, say 20 years. I think certainly as like as someone who works in a high level language. So if you're if you are writing JavaScript or Ruby or Python or something like that, C sharp or whatever, I think that you do have a different experience of what are the challenges of writing software than someone 20, 30 years ago trying to write probably lower level software or at least on a less sophisticated computer, a less sophisticated operating system. You know, I think you're right that a lot of the work that developers do nowadays could be classified as being I don't know what the right word is. I kind of want to say janitorial. That sounds bad, but you know, <laughs> like, like you said, like connecting the pipes together and making sure they're correctly connected. Like it's it's actually not the same as writing lines of machine code and that there's no value judgment there about one or the other being more useful because or more difficult even like they're both difficult and they're both useful in different ways but i think it's true that at the moment a lot of the work that people do probably is more to do with dealing with the complexity of systems you know having to employ these kind of system thinking skills to reason about something that's complicated and try and figure out either why it's not doing the thing that you want it to do or how to make it do a new thing that you want it to do like those are the problems that are present in the minds of most developers these days i would say whereas i'm sure that there is some point in the past where people were more thinking of how do i get this frustratingly simple system to do anything that seems like less and less the kind of problems that we're having to deal with now and it's more this kind of information overload so many choices. How do I even pick a library to do this thing? I can see that there are 50 different ones. And how am I meant to pick one? Do I just pick the one that's got the most GitHub stars? Or do I pick the one that a friend of mine said is really cool? Or like, those are really, really difficult problems. And and they're a lot more kind of human scale, because they're just as much about society and our culture as an industry and the politics of open source software and like there are so many difficult things to think about and actually i would hazard a guess that fewer of those problems are fundamentally technological like they're all related to technology but i think the hard problems and the the difficult end of the decisions that a developer who's just getting into the industry will need to figure out now are probably more to do with those kind of Everything that you said, you know, what's the community like for the language that you're using? What's the ecosystem like? What are the third party libraries like? 
what's it like to use the tooling how do you keep up with the fact that the tooling might change daily or weekly or monthly and what's the new hotness and how do i make sure that my skills remain relevant like those are really challenging and difficult and it's a full-time job just dealing with all of that stuff and figuring out which of these google results do i trust which of these stack overflow answers seems correct like that is difficult work and it takes a lot of skill and judgment to be able to do that stuff effectively but that's more or less what the job is now yeah it's interesting specifically with package managers i think a lot about package managers because they're the biggest force multiplier for any language that wants to build a bigger denser more connected ecosystem or enable people to solve harder problems by building on previous work the package manager is what enables that it's the you know most important part of any ecosystem and the hard problem technically in package managers is the dependency graph the transitive closure operation of Get me all of the dependencies of the dependencies of the dependencies, et cetera, in a way that lists them out and I can then install them. That's a hard problem, but it's also solved. The the hard people problems are discovery, uh, getting signals for the quality of mm-hmm. uh, packages that we can use to determine which one is fit for our purpose, things like that. And those are less solved. Are there ways that we can teach people how to uh, at least get better at solving them? I don't know. Although I will say step one is, is get a package manager. Looking at you, Idris, I love you. Get a package manager. <laughs> I think it is difficult to teach these skills to people. I don't know a better way of doing it than spending time with them. Like I would love to find a way to scale up this kind of thing and figure out how do we teach the world how to be better at these kinds of things. But because part of what we're talking about here is to do with confidence and judgment and a sort of more methodical slash bloody-minded approach to work, if I need to teach those skills to someone... I really need to spend some serious time with them. Like I need to sit down with them, ideally in the same physical space, you know, so they can see my face and they can hear the tone of my voice and I can like see how they're feeling about what it is that they're trying to do. Because it is fundamentally, this sounds very touchy-feely, but it is sort of fundamentally an emotional journey to develop these skills because it is all about how do I go from a position where I don't know what good looks like. I don't know what's expected of me as a developer. I think there's just all this arcane magic out there in the world, and and I'm just going to need to memorize every single page of the spell book before I'm able to participate in this society. Like, how do you, this isn't an answer, this is just a question, like, how do you get those people to level up and feel more confident and feel less like the constant failure that they're experiencing as part of trying to do a job as a developer is any reflection on them. Like the fact that they're failing, the fact that it's difficult is intrinsic in what they're trying to do. Like the systems are complex, the problems are hard, and the only mechanism we have for approaching hard problems and complex systems is just to kind of persistently poke at them and try to pick them apart and try to allow them to go through periods of organic growth and then periods of pruning back where we figure out like okay we've this software has developed over the course of the last six months and we've bolted on a bunch of features now it's time to step back from it and try and figure out like is there a better underlying domain model here have how do we use all of the mistakes we've made over the last six months to help us to refine our understanding of the problem we were trying to solve you know if i could send some information back in time what would i tell myself six months ago that would mean i didn't make a bunch of these mistakes and how do i reorganize and redesign the software so that by construction those kind of mistakes can't be made like all of those kind of skills i think 
I don't know how to teach them other than just being patient with people and telling them up front that I want them to get better at them. You know, I, I think there's a problem with people who are new to software development don't really know what is expected of them. Like they know they want to get better, but there are not very many high fidelity, high trust sort of sources of information that are telling them what that means and how to do it. And so whenever I find myself in that sort of mentorship position, I'm always trying to begin by just being as upfront as, as possible with people and saying, look, I'm going to lay some stuff out for you. None of this is intended as in, like implied criticism of you. This is what I tell everyone, you know, everyone that I sit down with and try and help them to get better as a developer. I say to them, you know, however bloody minded and methodical you are right now, you need to be more so, you know, however patient you are right now you need to get more patient. Like these are the skills you need to build up and you need to slightly set aside the notion that this job is all about just memorizing APIs or becoming like super good at one particular programming language. Like all of those kind of craft level skills of just knowing your tools better are valuable. And that's something that does differentiate more experienced programmers from less experienced ones like obviously if you know all of the git commands and you know exactly how to you know reorder commits or you know how to pull that one commit out or you know how to split that one commit into two or you know how to do an interactive rebase such that it automatically runs your tests for every commit or whatever that is going to save you a bit of time like you will get 10 percent 15% faster at your job if you're able to internalize all of that kind of muscle memory of how do I use Git? How do I use Vim? How do I write a test? How do I, you know, what does the API of this thing look like? Like those are valuable skills, but they are not as valuable as those sort of metacognitive skills of how do I approach a problem? Like, how do I not just get defeated by the experience of trying to write software? And, and for me, the best way to communicate that to someone is just to sit with them and talk to them and work through a problem together and always be reflecting back to them and saying, I feel a little bit frustrated now. Like, I was hoping that that line of code we wrote was going to make the test pass, but it didn't make the test pass. Why do you think that is? And then they'll be, they'll be looking at the error message and then they'll be confused and they'll be say, I don't know. And they'll look to me and expect me to have the answer. And I'll say, well, I don't know either. Like, let's look closer at the error message or let's go and reread the test or let's go look at that line of code that we wrote and like try to keep pushing people towards that realization that like all you got to do is just keep sort of grinding away at it. And I, I, I don't want to make it sound bad because this is the stuff that I love. Like I could do this all day, every day. Like I absolutely love this process of grinding and leveling up and playing this sort of never ending open world you know rpg of like trying to get better as a developer i find it fantastically rewarding i love like spending hours and hours trying to get that one ridiculous test to finally pass it's very satisfying but actually communicating why it's satisfying and communicating that that is the thing that you should be trying to do is in itself like a big job for someone who is new in the industry and as far as they're concerned they have a completely legitimate motivation which is they want to be good they've got an app they want to make or they've got a job that they want to have or they've got like a salary that they are aspiring to earning and they just want to know how do i get there like how do i build that app 
how do I progress as fast as possible? How do I absorb the skills of more experienced people? And so it is a real challenge to steer those people in the right direction because it's sort of the opposite of what they want to hear. Like they want to be told, here are like seven, you know, it's like a listicle. It's like, here are the seven tips to being an awesome developer and like number five will shock you. Like, I don't <laughs> think there is that. I don't think there is that list of things other than like, each of the things in my own personal list are like kind of boring and don't sound fun because they're all about like yeah yeah like patiently refactoring and kind of methodically <laughs> progressing through the problem and always stopping to reflect on your own understanding of what you're doing and why and remembering like what is the story that you are trying to deliver here what was the thing that you originally started researching have you gone down a rabbit hole like that stuff is actually quite hard to teach and the only you know, the only mechanism for communicating that, I think, is to just have have this kind of honest dialogue about it and say, I find this difficult or I find this stressful or I feel defeated in this situation. But let's go get a cup of coffee. Let's take five minutes away from the computer. Let's talk about what we watched on Netflix last night. And then let's come back to it and take another run at it. And I promise you we'll have cracked this by the end of the day. Like that's what seems to get people closer to being able to do it independently is to see someone else who they think knows the secrets kind of tell them that there isn't a secret and that they can do exactly the same thing as you if they're prepared to just kind of grit their teeth and power through it. Can I suggest that there's one other thing that I think is related that as someone who has had great mentors in my career has been, I think for me, aside from that, the most useful thing, which is having someone tell you what's next. As someone who's trying to learn programming, there's this giant, undifferentiated mass of stuff I might want to learn. There are, you know, hundreds of programming languages. There are thousands of books, millions of blog posts, hundreds of different things. You know, there, there's so much to learn. And at any given point in your career, a lot of those things aren't going to be useful for you, or they're not the, the right thing for you to focus on. And at any given point, so I can learn 0% of the things that are out there. So which, which yeah. 0% should I pick? And, and just having someone tell you, okay, given where you are in your career, here are some things that will help you progress from here. Here are the things that, that should be next for you. And they don't have to be right, but they're better. I mentioned this last week. They're better than just guessing what you should learn next. <laughs> it's better than selecting that thing by chance. So maybe there's something that could be done with regards to, I mean, because I, I think uh, to your point, Rain, that, that there's sort of this custom problem of that everybody is on their own path and has sort of a different set of experiences and mentors and things that they've learned and and gaps that they, they still have, um, bad habits, whatever. And maybe if we could come up with a way to understand where people's gaps are in the moment and recommend the what's next thing. Again, maybe breaking down that problem of how do you get better? What does better even mean? And how do we assess where somebody is at well enough just so that we can answer that what's next? Yeah, question. I was going to say, think about the level of connection and almost, I guess I can say, intimacy that you need with a mentor to really understand where you are, what your goals are, how your learning process works to really be able to give you the best advice on on how to proceed. A good mentor is a very important and well-connected, you know, is a close part of, of your relationship to learning. 
It's not just someone who, you know, we talk about senior developers and how they should be mentors. And I don't think people understand necessarily what that means. Yeah, and I think there's a risk there that people think that it is just about teaching the more obvious skills. You know, it is just about, I'm going to pair with you and I'm going to tell you, you know, that there's a method, innumerable module that will do this for you. You don't need to write a loop there. Like, I've, I've memorized a thing. Um, I'm going and to again, teach you like, this think, one weird Vim trick. <laughs> right. And that, again, that stuff is cool and it's fun and it's useful, but it's not the essential bit of what we're talking about. And I mean, the conversation that you've just had there reminds me of one of my kind of personal hobby horses which is this idea of trying to help people to focus more on what i consider to be the fundamentals i'm not going to disappear down a rabbit hole and talk about computer science because that's not what i mean by fundamental i just mean so something like i've seen a lot of people struggle with learning react and i think that's unfortunate because react is fundamentally a simple idea i mean the actual implementation of it is increasingly complicated but i don't think there's anything in there that a beginner developer can't quite easily grasp it's just that it goes back to this problem of sort of ecosystems and incidental complexity of like if you sit down and try to learn react you will find yourself also trying to simultaneously learn like several other things at the same time so you'll be you know you'll be trying to figure out what is es6 and what is jsx and potentially things like you know what are promises or what is the dom and like there are so many things that people try to learn simultaneously. And I think this is related to the issue of what do people learn next? It's kind of where do you start? Like, where do you, how do you find a beginning thread for someone to start kind of walking along and figuring out, well, what's the first thing that I can learn? What's the first thing that I can understand? And then once they've understood you know, this is opinionated, like, in my opinion, what is the most important fundamental idea that you need to grasp to be able to make progress with this technology? Because that's something that a beginner is fundamentally unable to determine from themselves, like from the yeah, outside, exactly. they've got zero basis for judging, like which of these 10 things that all seem to be piled together into these tutorial are actually important and which ones are things that I could ignore. And so as part of mentoring someone, I feel like one of the things I'm constantly doing is giving them feedback on what aspects of what they're trying to learn are actually fundamental and which ones are incidental. And that might be something as simple as you know, someone's asking about like, how do I write this test? And it might be that what they're looking for is some kind of biblical revelation about there's actually a magical matcher in aspect that will do all of this for you. And sometimes they get frustrated with me because I sort of categorically refuse to tell them about those things. Like I'm much more likely to say, let's not even install aspect. Like let's just write a file of Ruby code where every time we want to test something, we'll just say raise unless you know, right. foo, foo.bar equals 42. And they're like, but what about the testing framework? And I'm like, well, we'll get to that later. Like that is a thing that will level you up. Like once you've got to level 10, learning aspect will take you to like level 11, you know, like, but we need to get you from zero to 10 first. And I know that that's sometimes that can be frustrating for people because usually people do just want to learn the cool thing. So for me to be sitting down with someone and saying, I'm going to teach you about React, but actually we're not going to get to use Babel and ES6 and JSX. I'm just going to show you this kind of bare bones. How do we use React just with ES5? And we're not going to use JSX and it's going to be sort of bare bones. And we're just going to concentrate on like these two methods that are part of the React and React DOM APIs. Sometimes they're a bit like, well, this seems kind of boring and not the thing that I wanted to learn. 
I feel like I have to help people to, or at least I have to try to persuade them that like, well, just trust me, like this might not feel like the cool thing that you wanted to learn, but I have some degree of faith that if we can get through this fundamental stuff, what that's going to give you is enough of a mental model to be able to start making your own decisions about what's next. Like if all you're doing is just constantly relying on other people to tell you what's interesting and what's worth learning, you're never going to be independent. Like you're always just going to be at the mercy of how convincing a blog post or how entertaining a conference talk you just saw or read. Whereas what I want people to do is to feel like they have self-determination, you know, sort of technological self-determination where they're like, well, I've got the basics of this down. And now I think that what I would really like is to not have to write react.create element all over the place. And at that moment, if they learn that JSX is a thing, they can be like, oh, perfect. That's the solution to that frustration I was feeling. Now it's time for me to go learn that thing. And there's going to be a bit of incidental complexity. But now I understand why I should learn it and what the utility of it is. And like trying to bootstrap that process in people's minds so that they can not just, you know, another hobby horse I've got is like people feeling overwhelmed with object oriented programming and how many potentially conflicting pieces of advice there are out there about objects and how to do object oriented design, all of that kind of thing. Like whenever I'm trying to help people with OO stuff, I'm always like trying to focus in on like one idea or two ideas and just say, well, let's start with a very simple premise here. And then we can gradually work our way out through all of this advice that's in books and blog posts. And like, you can gradually learn to find your own path through that advice because you get it fundamentally from the beginning. And I think that's a thing that's very difficult for anyone to do without someone else to at least who they trust to like find them a way in so they can begin like that journey for themselves and have enough support from someone else to be able to keep nudging them in the right direction, even if you're not spoon feeding them the answers at every stage. Well, I think you've just touched on one of the, another one of those sort of fundamental skills that in my mind differentiates earlier career from people who are more experienced is just this ability to form a mental model, to be able to look at an undifferentiated mass of stuff and figure out what kind of categories of things are in there? What buckets of functionality are, are in there? And how can I start separating those things out? Because like, just looking back at my own career, certainly for the past six or seven years, most of what I've learned has been essentially how to be more disciplined about, no, this goes here and that goes there and never the twain shall meet. And so maybe there's a way that we can help people figure out that that ability to form a mental model is a thing you need to figure out soon and maybe help them practice it a bit. Yeah, I, I guess for me, mentoring falls into sort of two buckets. One is there are, I think, general global problem solving tools and techniques that can be taught. And the other has to be finding out where they are and what they want to learn, where they want to go, how they learn best and coming up with a artisanal handcrafted plan to get them there. There is one announcement that I, that we do need to make on this show, which is that um, we have a new idea for what, a thing that we would like to do with you, our listeners and our community, which is we love the movement and the ideas that are coming out of this show and we love the messages that we're sending. But, you know, there are only 52 weeks in a year and we can't podcast every day, although obviously we wish we could. Uh, we do have jobs. <laughs> Uh, and so we want to open up opportunities for anybody to be able to submit blog posts about what it means to be greater than code. Uh, if you have experiences or stories or anything that 
you know, sends a positive message to the community or helps somebody learn something useful. We know that some of you have your own blogs. Uh, I, in fact, do not. I shut mine down years ago, <laughs> but many people don't. Um, maybe you think you don't have enough content to justify your own blog. That's certainly what keeps me from, from starting mine up again. Uh, so we want to give everybody uh, a medium where you can share sort of one-off ideas and maybe generate some discussion around them. So if you have something you'd like to write a blog post about, please get in touch with us. And I also want to mention that you get access to an excellent editor, which if anyone has tried to write a book can tell you having a good editor is very important and really makes that process much more feasible. Yeah. Well, we have more stuff that we would like to talk about, but uh, unfortunately, Janelle has a hard stop today. Uh, so we're going to take a moment. And uh, Janelle, uh, if you have any reflections that you'd like to uh, share about today's show or any closing thoughts before you drop out, uh, now's your chance. Probably the biggest thing that stuck with me that Tom said was just about looking at things as multidimensional problems as opposed to one dimension. And I think that applies to so many different situations where we boil down the world into this kind of one dimensional spectrum, whether it's a uh, junior or, or senior versus, you know, how much of, you know, something there is. It's, it doesn't seem to matter what problem space it is. We have a tendency to kind of look at the world in these kind of simplified dimensions and almost everything we deal with in software is a multidimensional problem and multidimensional trade-offs. And I mean, walking away, I think that's probably the one thing I'm going to ask myself is, you know, when I'm just recognizing that, you know, if I'm ever boiling something down into a single dimension to just take a step back and think about, are there actually multiple dimensions to this that I'm ignoring and blind to because I'm boiling down the world that way? So I think that's the biggest thing I'm going to start thinking about differently now. So thank you, Tom. Thank you. All right. So Tom, you had a bunch of ideas uh, that you shared with us. One of them had to do with your experiences coming out of uh, helping Sandy Metz teach her practical OO design and Ruby classes. Um, mm -hmm. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. So last year I co-taught that class with Sandy and she does a lot of teaching and yeah, some of that teaching, she needs other people in the room to just kind of help out because of the number of people there. Um, I wouldn't want to misrepresent that. It's still basically Sandy teaching people, but me being in the room and being able to help out with people and answer questions and stuff was, it was really fun. And it's great to uh, just spend time hanging out with Sandy and uh, all of the other great sort of co-instructors that work with her. But it's also useful to keep re-exposing myself to either beginners or people who are trying to get better at various ideas. Like, and it's a great way to have a different kind of conversation with people than you would normally have as part of your day-to-day -day work because it's quite often the case that when you're working with some other developers trying to solve a problem and you're all sort of talking about it in kind of developer speak and you already know the domain language and you know the problem space and you're just kind of going deep on all of these ideas and you don't necessarily get a chance to question your fundamental assumptions or talk about going back to this point I made about sort of thinking about the fundamentals of what you're doing. And so like one of the things that I got out of teaching those classes with Sandy was just giving myself the chance to think a bit more clearly and a bit more separately about object oriented design, because it's something that is so implicit in a lot of the work that programmers do is trying to plug objects together and trying to build systems that are easy to change and, you know, have a low cost of change and that have a low chance of containing bugs and stuff like that. 
But it's nice to have the opportunity to talk to people who don't already know how all of that stuff fits together. And they have lots of questions about what the point of this stuff is and how do I, there's so much advice out there about how to do object-oriented design and how am I supposed to learn all of it and synthesize all of it. Like I found it very helpful to have those kind of conversations. And it's a bit of a, I guess, a bit of a cliche, this thing about you don't really understand something until you've taught it to somebody else. But like, it's true every time, like every time I do teaching or I run a training course or I'm mentoring someone, I feel like it's such a massive learning experience. And there was something about the particular groups of people who are interested in sort of getting Sandy to come teach them about OO are just like a really interesting audience to teach and not not an audience that I would be able to attract on my own. So that's one of the great things about that is spending time with a room of really motivated people, really smart people, people who really care about their work and they really want to like, they're doing the best thing they can think of to level up and to learn more about stuff. So they're the sort of the most self-motivated and interested learners you could possibly hope for and being able to have conversations with those people about what are objects why do we have them what's the point of them was just a really eye-opening experience for me for someone who's been you know i've been doing object-oriented programming among others for what feels like a very long time like i was a java programmer in the 90s and then i became a ruby programmer in the in the in the noughties um, so I'm kind of, although I do a bunch of programming in other languages and, and although Ruby in particular makes it very easy to maybe not think about objects some of the time, it's just as easy to write a kind of, you know, sort of a functional style program and, and not even define any classes or whatever and do a more sort of closure style maps and lists and stuff. You know, I still work with objects a lot. A lot of the languages I use have got some notion of object, even when I went through a sort of academic period of my life in the sort of mid 2000s, I was doing a lot of programming in an OCaml, which is a, a functional language, but like the O in OCaml is, well, it stands for objective, but you know, it's because it's got objects in it. And so like <laughs> it, it feels like this is one of the unifying themes of the last couple of decades of my programming career has been thinking about how to work effectively with objects. And I'm trying to figure out how to distill some of the thoughts I had down into a way that might be useful to people. I suppose like the simplest thing that has become increasingly clear to me over the last decade, but it was only really last year co-teaching with Sandy a couple of times that it gave me the time and the space and the opportunity to have conversations that really brought it into sharp focus for me was that there's only really like one important idea in object-oriented programming, which is, I want to try and explain it without using any buzzwords, you know, effectively the idea that you can call a method on something, but you don't know which implementation of the method is going to be triggered by that call. So, so what, in the past, how? right. And so I've been, you know, the sort of jargony way of saying that would be saying that the, the one important feature of OO is that you get subtype polymorphism, you know, this idea that you can have You've got an object, you know something about the type of it, whether I'm not talking about static types here, I'm just saying like, you know that it is an instance of some subclass of a thing, you know, it matches some interface or whatever, you know, even if you don't have static types, if you're just thinking about duck typing, I know that this object implements this method, or I know that it will respond to this message or whatever. But the fact that you're able to program, I guess well, like one of the things that Sandy would say is you kind of program to a role. You're, you're not assuming anything about the actual concrete implementation of that thing. And that is what allows you to segregate knowledge in your program. And that's the most important thing. Like the fact that you're able to control which bits of your program know stuff rather than just saying every line of code, every class, every method, every bit of this 
software project like has got maximal knowledge of every other part like that's when it becomes impossible to change and maintain your software and it was this sort of very gradual dawning realization for me that although when i learned about oo i was taught like a bunch of different principles like you're taught that like you know for example class is a very important and inheritance is very important and the idea of sort of having private members sort of an object being a kind of an encapsulation mechanism for hiding information like i think all of those things they are all things but I don't think any of them is necessary or sufficient to have like the benefits of OO. I'm increasingly convinced, and this is the thing, if I was sitting down with someone, I haven't been in this situation, but if I was sat down with someone who was saying, I've never used an object-oriented programming language before and I want to start learning one, can you give me a summary of what the point of this is? I think I would probably begin by talking about this, by saying, well, the point of an object is that it's a piece of data that carries operations around with it, but because we identify operations by names, because we because languages have a concept of binding, and because either through message passing or some other, you know, vtable mechanism or whatever, we have some way I would find a more friendly way of explaining this. But uh, what I'd be communicating is because we have some way of dereferencing names into operations, we are able to refer to operations on objects by their name. And that means we don't know what implementation of that operation we're actually going to get. And so that means that something in a very distant part of your program can make a decision about what kind of thing it's going to make. So there's going to be a factory somewhere, or there's going to be a method that's going to say, I'm going to instantiate the foo class rather than the bar class, or maybe there aren't classes at all. Maybe you're just manufacturing objects and you're creating a completely new implementation of this operation for every single object that you instantiate. And then at that point, those objects become data and they flow through your program. So those values kind of travel around your program and they bring that knowledge with them. And the bits of your program that they reach don't know anything about that. All they know is that there's an operation called, you know, foo and that they can activate that operation. They can execute it. And whether there's one underlying implementation of that operation or if there are a million underlying implementations is completely unknowable to the part of the program that is saying it wants the operation to happen. And I think that's the fundamental thing that, that is the strength of object-oriented programming. Now, there are a lot, lot of problems with OO as well, and people are quick to complain about it, and I sympathize with those complaints. But I think unless you're aware of this idea of values carrying operations with them and you not having to know what that operation is apart from just knowing that there is an operation called foo and it's going to be attached to that value like that's what lets you segregate the knowledge in your program in a way that makes it more likely that you're going to be able to change and maintain it and to me that's the underlying theme of a lot of the stuff that you know sandy teaches what she wrote in her book and what she says in her talks and also for me it, it provides a bit of a unifying theme for all of the advice that I read about OOP. So things like the solid principles and various other kind of blog posts and conference talks. Now, when I go back and reread those things and rewatch them and try and look at them through the lens of like, how is this advice a consequence of the importance of this like subtype polymorphism via dynamic dispatch in OO? It all sort of makes sense to me in that way. And I, I don't think I would have got quite as much clarity on that without having an opportunity to talk to lots of individual people who were curious and smart and they had questions about how does this work? Why is it important? Why do we want to write programs like this? Fundamentally, why do we want to attach operations to values? Like, why is that a thing? Why can't we just have data and then have operations that inspect the data and make decisions at the point of use, as opposed to this thing where you can make a decision at the point that the value is created and only much later on 
does that decision have an effect when you actually call that operation called foo and like finessing that conversation with individual people who are curious and interested to understand it better like massively improved and clarified my own understanding so that's like very valuable yeah the way that i've said this for a while which is quite a bit less nuanced is that object-oriented programming was invented because we wanted to write programs by having things talk to each other and more importantly tell each other what to do yeah, it seems to me, as you were talking, it really helped clarify this idea in my head that there are several blind alleys in the way that we teach OOP. And I think the the first one that many people, like I think the first level of unlearning the bad things that we learn about OOP that many people encounter is the idea of inheritance being important. I think at some point people realize that it's not necessarily inheritance that matters, just the idea that you may have several different types of a thing and they all have the same interface. But then we talk about encapsulation and and data hiding. And I feel like even the way those are presented, right, an object protects access to its own instance variables. And so we think that the contents of those variables, the specific values are what is important, where as I see it now, what really is important is the idea of hiding where we make decisions about those things. So that if you are looking at a number and if you're deciding if it, you know, that if it's 42, it means one thing. And if it's, you know, 17, it means something else. That information about that knowledge about what those things mean should live in that object or they get scattered throughout your system. And then everything depends on everything else. Right. It's interesting that this has been said in a variety of different ways by a variety of different people, including Alan Kay, when he originally came up with the idea, which is that the thing of importance, the thing that you should be focusing on in an object-oriented system is the messages and not so much the objects. Right. That's the punchline of all this, I suppose, is like nothing that I just said is is new information. Like it's been, we've understood this for decades. It's just, and again, it's kind of going back to the previous discussion about incidental complexity and how hard it is no matter how experienced you are and how much time you've spent with a thing, how difficult it is to retain that focus on what is the thing that's actually really important, as opposed to all of the other stuff around it, all of the other ideas that have stuck onto the fundamental idea and all of the advice you've heard and all of the kind of, you know, hacker news threads that you've battled through of people saying that something's awesome and another person saying that it sucks. And like, it's very difficult to keep your head straight and to keep focusing on what is fundamentally the important thing here what is the guiding principle that i'm using to make decisions am i trying to memorize a thousand different slogans that i've read in a thousand different books and heard in conference talks or am i just trying to cultivate this very clear and straightforward mental model of why something is important and use that as my guiding principle to make all of those decisions for myself so whether that is you know, understanding in full detail, or at least in some detail, like what the underlying model of something like Git is. Like this is another example of a thing that if you try to get good at using Git just by memorizing every single command, it will probably gradually just sap the life out of you because fundamentally the way you make progress in that problem of like, how do I, okay, I've learned like three commands that allow me to do some basic stuff, but I keep finding myself in these situations where I'm getting like a weird error or it says that it's not happy or it says I've, my head has become detached or something. And I don't know what that means. And it's not until you sit down or someone sits down with you and draws you some pictures of like, well, here's like a Merkle tree or, you know, here's some notion of like, we've got this content addressable database. We've got a bunch of things that we put into it and they've just got references to each other. And we're gradually building up this kind of append only data structure. And these things that we call branches are just like, you know, sticky notes Post-its, that are stuck yeah. on yeah, individual commits. Like until you have that kind of 
And that's what allows you to then start kickstarting judgment. You can't have an opinion about what the right way to use Git is until you have that mental model. And then you can start using that mental model as a basis for making informed decisions about whether something is a good or a bad idea. And I think there's a sort of an equivalent of that in the world of OO programming or functional programming or any kind of software development work where it's like, that's the fundamental thing is figuring out like what's the principle that i believe in here like i i don't mean to imply that what all of that stuff i just said is like objectively true this is all just my opinion right like i have found that for everything that i want to be good at or that i want to teach other people about i need to crystallize and clarify like what i think the organizing principle is there and that's what allows me to then when someone shows me a page of code and asks me what I think of it, I'm not just like shooting from the hip with some kind of completely irrational gut reaction. It's more that I'm able to go back and reinspect, like, what are my principles? What are the things I care about? What do I think is the, the foundational model here that allows me to make judgments and make decisions? And then I can give them sort of meaningful and actionable feedback where I say, well, it's not just like, I don't like the way you've indented that function definition, or I don't like the tense that you've used in the name of that local variable. It's like, I mean, maybe I do think those things, but I can wind it back to some kind of, why do I think that that's a bad name for that local variable? Well, let's try using it in a sentence, or let's imagine that local variable in a different context, or let's imagine someone coming and looking at this code and not understanding what that thing's used for, and they're just looking at one line. You know, being able to like, provide that kind of context and in that case in that example the foundational principle is we're writing code for other people to read and so that's why names are important like the computer doesn't care but ultimately this thing that you're writing is going to be read by someone in a week or a month who is tired and angry and frustrated and by the way is probably going to be you so like let's <laughs> let's yes. let's start from a position of maximum empathy for that poor person and try and figure out what decisions can we make now to make their life easier then and so like having those kind of principles to go by and iteratively refining those principles is a thing that i think is really important and that's that's a big part of why I get so much enjoyment out of teaching and mentoring and coaching people is the purely selfish desire to like keep tightening the screws on all of those things that I think are true. And like the more I can believe in them, the more I'm able to use them to drive all of these other decisions. And when people ask me for advice, I'm always just going back to the same well of like, you've asked me a question about OO design. I'm just going to try and answer it just based on this one thing that I think is important. Yeah, this actually goes all the way back from me to when we were talking about teaching and, and mentoring. And I mentioned that there are universal skills and then there are the specific things that are useful in a, in a situation. And the, the most important universal skill for me by far is being able to use system models, be able to build uh, mental models of the thing you're trying to understand to test it against the thing you're trying to understand to figure, to validate it, to use it for understanding and to make predictions and, and learning. So if, if there's one thing that I, as a mentor, try to impart on people, it's how to use mental models. And not just about your software, but about the processes in your own head or the interpersonal things that happen on a team. You need to be able yes. to use those skills at that level as well. Yeah, it's very important to be able to have a model, an accurate model of other people's mental state. If you're <laughs> going to be working with other humans. Yeah. You know, th this is a thing that most children at some point in the first few years of their life, you know, they go from being a kind of 
completely oblivious entity that doesn't really have any kind of theory of mind. And most children go through a process of gradually developing that theory of mind and then beginning to understand that like these other blobs of uh, meat around you actually have their own internal lives and their own internal states. And like, I think continuing to level up in that area and being able to when you're working in a company with five or 10 or 50 or a thousand other people that on some level, you are running a little simulation of everyone else's. What do they know? What do they believe? How are they feeling right now? And like using that to guide your interactions and your discussions. And like, I'm going to review this pull request and I'm going to try and give this person some feedback. But I also know they're kind of having a hard time at the moment, or I know that they're, they've only just learned this thing. Like, if you don't have that mental model of what is going on in other people's minds, then you don't stand a chance of being able to be constructive and considerate in your in your interactions with them because you're just going to be treating them as the kind of median human, which no one is. Everyone reacts differently. Everyone has different ebbs and flows of their moods and what they're worried about and th- what their energy level is and what they feel confident about. And like, it's a lot of work. Like, it's difficult to keep that whole spreadsheet like constantly maintained in your head. But like, it's just as important a skill as, you know, having mental models of OO or of Git or of testing or whatever. Like, and that's the depressing truth, I think, about being really good at software development is you get need to get really good at that metacognitive skill of having very high fidelity mental models of all the things. And that is right. a lot of work. Although looking at it a different way, to some extent, being able to maintain mental models of what's happening inside other people's head is what we were evolved to do. And some of what I've done in my own career is just collect ways of mapping abstract software problems onto pretending that I'm thinking about people so I can use those parts of my brain that have evolved to do that. That's a good mind hack. So I just had a realization. You know how a lot of people say that object-oriented programming is good because it's such a close mapping onto how the real world is? And then it doesn't have to be. They brought out, you know, Cats are animals and cars are vehicles and that's how the world is and that's how classes are and that's good. Well, I think they're right, but I think they're right for the wrong reason. I think the reason that object-oriented programming does in some ways model real life is that object-oriented programming is basically what I said before, which is trying to get other people to do things without knowing anything about how they're feeling or what state they're in or how they'll respond to your request. And the only thing you can do is say, hey, I want this. Can you do that? And then sending that message. Wow. That's a good link. Nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> well, before we move on, I'd like to take a moment to remind everybody that uh, this is a 100% listener supported show. And uh, the way that you can support us, if you like what we're doing and you would like us to do more of it, is to go find us at patreon.com slash greater than code and uh, give us some money. Any contribution at any level will get you access to our wonderful Slack community, which is full of dozens upon dozens of wonderful people uh, with interesting things to say to one another and who are interested in uh, providing emotional support, which is just really great. Uh, one of those people who has joined us recently is Kira McLean. Kira on Twitter describes herself as a Canadian software developer from the East Coast. She loves traveling and politics, and she says, quote, I'm doing what I can to spread reasoning and quickly realizing how screwed we are. So on that wonderful, cheerful note, uh, thank you, Kira, for supporting us, and uh, welcome to our community. So, reflections, segue. <laughs> Boom. Nailed Boom, it. segue.
I am going to get back on my horse and uh, recommend Gerald Weinberg's book on system models and introduction to general systems thinking. It is the book that really led my awakening, if I'm going to use a slightly suspicious way of describing it, in terms of understanding the world through my mental models of the things I interact with. It was hugely influential in my own growth as a software developer and as a person. So I'm going to give it a plug. Cool. Um, one of the things that uh, I'm really going to take away from this conversation is uh, just a renewed uh, appreciation for the importance of the skill of metacognition. It seems like you can't get better at any of the other things that we've talked about without being able to examine your own internal processes and see and evaluate what you've been doing and how you might be doing those things better. So uh, thank you, Tom, for making me think about that for so very long today. Oh, you're very welcome. I guess that feeds into my reflection. Uh, I have two reflections, sorry. One of them was that I found very interesting Janelle's point about how the work has changed of being a developer and that point about how now it is more about learning to cope with complexity and learning to deal with complex systems and wiring things together and understanding how the big picture fits together. That's something I'm going to go away and think about some more. To your point, Sam, it makes me think of the, this, this is kind of an obvious recommendation, but the Nonviolent Communication book by Marshall Rosenberg is great for this sort of metacognition issue. So it's a book all about how to communicate effectively with someone. But my interpretation of the content of that book would be that it's all about how to build and communicate about the underlying reasons why you are saying or thinking or feeling a thing. So it's all about improving your own mental model of your own self and also improving your mental model of other people with whom you might be disagreeing by finding a way to communicate about, well, you tell me what's in your head and I'll try and tell you what's in my head and maybe we'll figure out why we're disagreeing or maybe we don't disagree and we're just both reacting to something external to the two of us. And like I found reading that book really helped me to refine that picture I have in my head of, you know, my own behavior and the reason why I do things. And it helps me to understand why other people do things as well. So... I think that's a, that's a nice uh, companion to Rain's recommendation. All right. Well, thank you for bearing with us through the end of a, an epic Greater Than Code. And we love you all, and we'll talk to you next week. <laughs> <laughs>